You're listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, April 1st, 2020. Today's teaching is titled Suffering for Righteousness. Visit strategieswork.com to subscribe to the email version of Gleanings for additional teachings and more information. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled Suffering for Righteousness. Well, good morning. This morning we will be studying out of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. And the topic or the title I have assigned to this is Early Opposition. So first, a few words of introduction. The New Testament Ecclesia was birthed in a very unique context, perhaps a context like no other in church history. Consider, for example, these four distinctives, singular ethnicity, biblical literacy, commitment, and sacrifice. Now, let me explain each of these. Singular ethnicity refers to the fact that everyone that was there on that day of Pentecost recorded in Acts 2 was either an indigenous or a dispersed Jew. It appears that it was largely dispersed Jews. Secondly, biblical literacy. The Jews were very biblical, very biblically literate, not only the indigenous Jews, but the dispersed Jews. The dispersed Jews you know, had synagogues. The synagogue system was set up after the dispersion and became the way that the Bible was taught and trained, not only to the Jews that lived dispersed in various Gentile nations, but also the way the Gentiles learned it. And that's very important to church history. The next thing is commitment. The Jews were committed to the veracity and authority of the Bible. Unlike today, when there's a lot of skepticism about the Bible, the Jews had no skepticism at all. In fact, the fact that they were committed to this reveals, you know, is shown up in the next element of what I'm trying to say here, these four distinctives, which is sacrifice. The Jews were willing to sacrifice their time, financial resources, and lost work time to travel long distances to express their commitment to their convictions by participating in the religious rituals of the Old Testament law. There were three major Old Testament festivals a year. The day of Pentecost was one of these three. These people traveled long distances, risked their safety not to mention sacrificing time, resources, and work opportunities to be part of this, which says something about their incredible commitment to the word of God and living consistent with the word. The Jews live with great integrity to a Christian world, a biblical worldview, not a Christian worldview. Today, we want to live with integrity to a Christian worldview. But the problem is today, we don't know how to do that very well. We're not trained to do that. We don't enjoy these traits. We're not highly biblically literate, we're not highly committed, and we're not very sacrificial. We're basically in Christianity for what's in it for me. We're not in it for what's in it for God. So that raises questions, a lot of questions with us, and that is how are we going to move forward? How are we really going to grow up? How are we really going to be the people that God has called us to be? Well, I think the key to that is we're going to have to really get these characteristics of us. We've got to become very biblically literate. We have to become very committed and we have to become sacrificial. Those are the keys to living this out. And until we do that well, we will be lukewarm. We will be mediocre. We will never be robust 
committed, ex, you know, excellent, and we will never bear much fruit. So hopefully that challenges us to think, think deeper, think more profoundly. In Acts chapter four, Peter and John were living out the reality of biblical literacy. They knew the word. They were living the word. They were committed to the word. They were sacrificing for the word. And so it's in that context that they run into opposition. And you need to know that we will be opposed. Anytime you're trying to walk in the power of the word of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be resistance. And this is part of our calling is to fight this resistance and overcome this resistance in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's just see how Peter and John did on dealing with their opposition and what lessons we can learn from there here in Acts chapter four, verses one through 31. Now I'm gonna break this up into five sections. The first section is Peter and John arrested. The second is Peter's apologetic. How does he defend himself against the, the questioning of the inquisition here, which is the Sanhedrin? Then there's the response of the Sanhedrin, how they respond to Peter's apologetic. And finally, Peter and John do give a brief response to their response, and they, they then give a final threat to Peter and John. And then Peter and John retreat from there. They're released and they retreat and go spend time with the Ecclesia. And there you see what the Ecclesia did in response to this. Very powerful lessons, a very powerful picture for all of us. So reading verses one through four, Peter and John arrested. While they were speaking to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed and probably very jealous as well that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. It wasn't just Jesus was resurrected from the dead, but they would be resurrected from the dead and to enjoy eternal life. So they, that is the, the civil leaders there and the religious leaders seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now that, that doesn't include women and children, that's just the men because back in those days, they only counted the men. When Peter and John were still speaking to this group of over 5,000 men, plus perhaps women and ch children, the religious leaders became annoyed and arrested Peter and John. They were jealous at the large crowd that Peter and John attracted because the religious leaders were hypocrites who used their religious authority to do their will, not God's will. The authorities, including the Sadducees, who were part of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees claimed there was no resurrection and denied miracles. They were disturbed by the healing miracle of the lame man, the, ch <clears throat> the charge that they had murdered Jesus, and the claim that Jesus was the Christ and had been resurrected. In addition, 5,000 men believed the message of forgiveness of sins. All of this was very troubling to these religious leaders. Now Peter's apologetic, verses 5 through 12. The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with, with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power 
or in what name have you done this? Very interesting question. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he has, was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. This is, there is salvation in no one else other than in the name, under this name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. In other words, Jesus Christ is the unique power source, the only name that we can appeal to for salvation from our sins because human beings are totally depraved, therefore totally unable to self-save, self-justify. The religious leaders who convened this hearing were essentially the same ones who had convened the kangaroo court that sentenced Jesus to death two months prior. The court's question was simple to Peter and John. By what power and what name have you done this? Now, this was a compound question. They were asking either reveal the source of your power or the name of the person who authorized you to do this. Requesting the name of the person who authorized the miracle may seem strange to us, but to the Jewish mind, there was power in a name. So in a sense, what was happening here is they asked the same question two different ways. Tell us either the source of your power or the name of the person who authorized it. You know, either way, we'll find out, you know, who's at the root of this. Luke noted that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit as he began to speak. Now, this is kind of strange because wasn't Peter filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Interesting that the passive tense is used here, which means that Peter was the recipient of the filling. In other words, Peter didn't fill himself. Peter was the one being filled. And perhaps this is an example of specific revelation. That is revelation from God that's given to a specific person in a specific situation for a specific design purpose that God promised to his followers. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 19. He told his followers that when you're arrested for on my sake, don't worry what you're going to say. But in that time, when you need to know, I'll give you the words to say. That's an example of specific revelation. So that could be the answer to the question. You know, wasn't Peter already filled? Well, yes, he already was. But perhaps this is an additional filling having to do with the specific revelation that he needed in that situation. So Peter's answer to the question of, <clears throat> by providing the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom the religious leaders crucified, but God raised from the dead, that would be very troubling to them because they knew they had killed him. They had executed him and they had heard these reports about his resurrection. And now these apostles are bearing witness to the resurrection. Now this brought to bear again the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, because Peter kept pointing out that you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, and he did it according to his plan and purpose, which meant that their sin of murdering an innocent person was used by God to accomplish his will. And one would think, well, that would give them a pass, that they wouldn't be held accountable for that sin, but that's not the way it works. They were accountable for that sin, even though that sin was used by God to accomplish his purpose. Doing a wrongful act that was used to do the will of God 
does not exempt the perpetrators of the act from accountability. Really, really hard reality about, about God's universe, but God does hold us responsible for our actions. Nevertheless, our actions never thwart the will of God. Peter continued to reveal more about Jesus using Psalm 118, verse 22, which was early, an early prophecy about Jesus, about Christ the Messiah. Using construction imagery, this text says, the foundation stone, referring to a foundation stone, was Jesus, the Messiah, and it would be used to build the ecclesia, the people of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews were the ecclesia, the people of God. The problem was the Jews did not have divine potency, and therefore they could never really be the ecclesia, even though they were given that opportunity. The opportunity was to, meant to reveal that they could never be the people of God based on their own strength. They didn't have the power to overcome their fallen condition. It would require divine power. They had to be born again and then empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in that reality. So the New Testament ecclesia is different. It, is, it, it begins not with people trying to be acceptable with God, but begins with people who have been accepted with God on the, by base, by, by the, on the basis of the work of Christ alone. But the Jews in the Old Testament never understood that. They didn't want to understand it. It is only now the New Testament ecclesia is understanding this new paradigm, this new covenant. The old covenant was based on the law. The new covenant is now based on the work of Christ. The old covenant can never be a basis for justification because mankind was totally depraved. The new covenant overcomes depravity by regeneration first, which is the entrance into the salvation process, and now the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the empowerment to live out the reality of being in the family of God. So Peter concluded with a declarative of the salvific power of the name of Jesus. The word salvation was used here without definition, which implied it was understood. At least it was understood by those who had heard the message from Peter. The leaders probably didn't want to understand it because they were resisting it. The proper understanding from the Old Testament was that humans are totally depraved and cannot self-save. They cannot self-justify. They have to be saved by someone else. They need to be saved from the righteous judgment of God that is the destiny of every human due to humans, the humanity's fallen condition. In this fallen state, no one has the power to self-justify or self-save before God. Therefore, a savior and it was provided in the person of Jesus, whose vicarious atoning work was the legal basis for justification. And now the Holy Spirit is empowering for sanctification. Peter spoke to the Jews as biblically literate people who should have understood this, just like Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John 3. And when Nicodemus showed he didn't understand that regeneration was a prerequisite to see in the kingdom, Jesus says, I'm shocked that you, a Jew, you don't understand this. The Old Testament reveals this. You should understand this. So these Jews should have understood this, but they refused to because they didn't want to see it because they wanted their own power. and They wanted to live as hypocrites. The healing of the lame beggar in, in Acts chapter two was simply a confirming sign of the transcendent truth of salvation in the name of Jesus. Now, the third section is the response of the Sanhedrin. How are they going to respond to this very compelling argument from from Peter and John. So let's read Acts 4, 13 through 18. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John 
and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. They connected the dots. These are the guys that were his followers. And since they saw the man that had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What can you say? This man was healed. You knew this man was a cripple for a long time. He's been around the temple for a long time. You know, you've never seen him walk. Now he's walking. What shall you say about that? There's nothing they could say. So after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves. So they have a little conference. What shall we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them. Clear, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem. Everyone sees this. We cannot deny it. That's true. Well, it's, it's tough when you're having to face truth and you have no response. But so that those these this does not spread any further among the people. You can see their their agenda was simply to control and to have, have power and authority. So we want to repress this. We're going to repress it unrighteously. We're going to tell them not to spread any more of this. So basically he says, but so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in his name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. This is really remarkable. Just a remarkable react to see them face truth and deny, they, I cannot accept the truth. I can't deny the truth. I can accept it. We will, we will act like it's not true. So the response is like, it's not true. Vocationally, Peter and John were fishermen. They were not formally trained priests and therefore had no standing with these people. This was clear to those who were formally trained. Nevertheless, they spoke freely. That is, Peter and John spoke freely without concern of consequences. That's called boldness. This amazed. In fact, the word amazed there means to marvel. They were marveled at this. The Jewish religious leaders who also recognized them to be companions as Jesus were amazed. Not only was this Peter's oration incredible, but you have this lame man healed. They couldn't deny this. The religious leaders were speechless. They had no explanation other than it had to be a miracle, but we can't treat it like a miracle. We have to deny that it's a miracle, even though we know it's a miracle. The religious leaders went into executive session to discuss the matter. They could not deny the obvious sign, but they were jealous for power and control over the people. As with Jesus, the people, the people believed Jesus and John's, Peter and John's message about Jesus the Jewish religious leaders operating out of competitive jealousy sought to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They wanted to punish Peter and John. However, Peter and John had not committed a crime. So the Sanhedrin had to live in the reality of that. They simply commanded them not to teach or speak in the name of Jesus. So now we go to the next section, which is Peter and John's response, a final threat from the Sanhedrin. This is Acts 4, 19 through 22. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. In other words, put yourselves in our position. You know, we, we have a mandate from God and we have a mandate from you. Who should we listen to? Should we listen to you or God? Who should we be? You or God? If you were in our shoes, what would you do? So he's appealing to them. Consider that. So whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you, to you rather than God, you decide. What would you do? For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We have a mandate from God. We are 
We're compelled. We are compelled to speak about Jesus, to bear witness of his resurrection, to speak about the forgiveness of sin, to speak about the salvation that's available to him. Well, after threatening them further, the Sanhedrin released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. In other words, it had been very unpopular to punish them. <clears throat> for this sign of healing had been performed for a man over 40 years old. The sign they couldn't deny, the people accepted it. They had to be very politically correct here and not do what they wanted to do. They wanted to beat them. They wanted to punish him, but they could not do that. So let's go to the last section, the prayer for boldness. Very different kind of prayer. You know, most of us don't pray bold prayers. Uh, and we we certainly don't pay, pray bold prayers when we feel persecution. We feel persecution. We're losing, usually uh, looking to hide. The Proverbs talk about what happened to the righteous when the when the wicked get, uh, rise to power. It says when the wicked rise to power, the righteous go into hiding. That's what, what happens to most of us. That's not what happens here. So this is an interesting prayer here. This is a community prayer. They're all praying this together. I don't exactly how this is being led. If it's a responsive prayer or, or one person prayed or they, 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 they prayed sequentially or what they did, we don't know that. But there are three parts to this prayer. There's first the address, the prophetic context, and then there's the prayer request itself. The prayer request at the end is very interesting. It's very different from what we would probably pray for. So let's listen to this prayer. Acts 4, 23 through verse 31. <clears throat> After they, that is, this, <clears throat> they were released. This is Peter and John. They were released. They went to their own people. They went to the ecclesia and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, that is when the ecclesia heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said. So this is a community, a community prayer. They're raising their voices together. That's just, that's an amazing way to put it. It's, it's, it's such unity. There's a unity of passion in this. In fact, the word here means a unity of passion. So here's how they, how they address him. So the first part of the prayer is verse 24, the, the address. <clears throat> they say master. Now the word there is despotes, which F.F. F. Bruce translated sovereign Lord. So I'm going to use that sovereign Lord. You are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit. Now that's taking us into the next part, which is contextualizing what the experience they're in. But look at just how they've addressed God. It reminds you of the disciples prayer, which begins, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing that maybe we should be doing in prayer is exalting the name of Jesus, exalting the Father, exalting the triune God, speaking out, saying, Sovereign Lord, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. You are sovereignly in control. You made it. You control it. So recognizing who he is and acknowledging we recognize it. So that's a great way to start a prayer, to address a prayer. Many times we address a prayer just saying something simple, oh God, help us, and we go into our prayer request. We need to start acknowledging the power and efficacy and the authority that God has over us and over all his creation. Now, the next sense is the prophetic context. This is now a quote from Psalm 2. He had quoted out of Psalm 118 before. Now he's quoting out of Psalm 2. 
Now, what we're trying to do here, as everybody should be trying to do, whenever you're trying to understand reality, you've got to contextualize it with the word of God. So here's what he says. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? In other words, futile things are things that are, are, are worthless. They're not going to work. It's stupid what you're doing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Christ, the Messiah. For in fact, both in this city, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus. Now, Psalm 2 was written to, it's written specifically of the Gentiles, but he uses it here of not only the Gentiles, but also the leaders of Israel who are acting like the Gentiles, they're rebelling against God. So it's interesting to see how he used it in, in a little different sense of which actually is given in Psalm 2. So the Holy Spirit expands the understanding of Psalm 2 here in this prayer. So again, in fact, this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. The word Christ means anointed. He is the anointed one to do what your hand and your will had predestined to take place. See, an anointing is to do the will of God. An anointing is not to do our will. An anointing is not to do what we want to do. Anointing is not necessarily to do what we have a vision to do. It's to do the will of God. And so we have to be very singular and clear on that. So they're contextualizing. They recognize who Jesus was. He did the will of God, and that was his primary agenda. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant your servants, grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness when you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So that you see how they, they went from contextualizing or recognizing what happened here was what was talked about in Psalm 2. Okay, we see that. We see this is kind of this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. So we're okay with this because God is in control. And our anointed one, our leader, Christ, was here to fulfill the will of God. It is obviously the will of God that there's going to that allowed this rebellion to happen. And so it's happening here. And we have been charged to deal with it just like Christ had to deal with it. So how do we pray now in, in light of understanding contextually what's going on? Well, now we want to pray for the prayer to be able to do the will of God in this situation. So verses 29 and 30 are about that. So let's uh, let's just look at that. The prayer does, did not conclude with a request for deliverance or protection from foolish religious leaders, but for boldness. See, most of us will be saying, Lord, get me out of this. I don't want to have to deal with this. Lord, why would you put me in this trial and tribulation? Don't you understand I'm doing your work here? This is how we would have handled it. That's not the way they handled it. They recognize this is a part of their call. This is part of doing the will of God is dealing with these kinds of situations. So they ask for boldness. But it said that Peter was bold. Why are you asking for boldness again or asking for sustained boldness and boldness for everyone? Because you see that how the, the, the text concludes here, after they finished their prayer, it says, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now, not only had Peter and John boldly acted, everyone is filled with boldness and they're bold in light of a threat. What, ha- what do we mostly do when we get threatened? We don't get bold, we get timid. But here they got bold and they got bold by through prayer and recognizing the truth of the situation, the truth of who God is and the truth of their call to do the will of God. So that's what this prayer is all about. May the Lord give us grace to be able to pray like this. This is a powerful way to pray. It is a biblical way to pray. Now, let me just give you a few theological, uh, one theological point here. And that is the call to suffer for righteousness. This is not a call that most of us think about. We don't really like this call. We really don't want to deal with this call. We'd like someone else to have to have this call, but this is a call that we all have. The religious leaders in Jesus's day jealously treated him with disrespect. In, in this end, you know, to this end, they convened a kangaroo court and sentenced him to a wrongful death. But in all this, the will of God was accomplished, demonstrating that the sinful acts of men cannot thwart the plan and purpose of God. You see, the will of God has two aspects to it. This is the way theologians deal with this whole, the reality of sin in a fallen world with a holy God. They recognize that God has a perfect will. That's called a preceptive will, perfect precepts, perfect law, perfect set of righteousness, standards of righteousness, that's perfect. But at the same time, they recognize he's decreed accommodation to sin. If he didn't decree accommodation to sin, there would be no humans. There would be no salvation. There would be no, we would just all be judged. That decree is seen in the fall. Adam and Eve, when they fell, the first thing that God did was accommodated their sin. That's mercy. That is forbearance. The judgment that was due their sin was not immediately fully executed. It was partially executed. They died physically and they were kicked out of the garden. But excuse me, died spiritually. But physically, they did not die. And they were they were allowed to live and reproduce. And now we have this fallen world. And now the, the world is discovering how fallen they are. And God is going to send a message of salvation, redemption to the world. All this is part of his decretive will and dealing with an, a world in which he had to accommodate sin. So this is many times when you're dealing with a suffering for righteousness, we're dealing with the decretive will of God where he is dealing with sin. God's plan and purpose is never thwarted by sin because it's uh, it's accommodated for in the decretive will of God. It is not according to the perceptive will of God, but it is accommodated for. That's a very interesting distinction theologians have made. During the early days of the New Testament Ecclesia, Jesus' followers, Peter and John, experienced the same treatment from the same religious leaders that, that Jesus experienced. Peter and John were arrested, reprimanded for healing a a lame man and using this incident to bear witness to the resurrection and salvific message of Jesus. To understand the persecution that Peter and John's experienced and all the members of the New Testament Ecclesia will experience, you have to recognize the reality that this is what we're called to do. This is part of our calling. So consider what Peter has to say about this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, he's got a very interesting thing to say. At this point in his book, He's talking about holy living, and he's talking about the workers. The workers were the slaves. 
in the Roman Empire, citizens did not work. It was slaves who worked, by and large. That was generally true. So when you see the reference in scripture to the slaves and you see uh, mandates or how to work, that's why you're seeing that. So he's talking to the workers. He said, for what credit is there if you do wrong and are beaten? In other words, these slaves are under masters. If you do wrong, you should be beaten. You deserve to be beaten. You shouldn't do wrong. But when you do what is good, that is what is righteous, what lines up with God and suffer for it, if you endure it, this brings favor to God. God is glorified by you doing that. For you were called to this. Yes, you were called to this. This is part of our calling. If you come to Christ, you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in the steps. In other words, we're imitating Christ when we suffer correctly. We endure suffer, suffering, recognizing God is in it to accomplish good some way, somehow, and he will be glorified in it if we endure it. Well, the apostle Paul weighed in on this and said the same thing, basically. He said in first Philippians 1, 29, it has been granted to you, that has been given to you, not only on Christ's behalf to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Like, wow, I like the believing in him. I don't really like the suffering for him. But this is what scripture tells us. James helps us understand more fully what this is. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He's not saying you will achieve perfection. He's saying you are being perfected. You are being completed. You're being purified. You're being sanctified. That's what suffering is intended to do. This is why we don't resist it. We are thankful for it because we know God's redemptive and he's using it to accomplish his purpose. Now, please know we don't have to be masochistic about this. We don't have to seek this out. You will have plenty of opportunities. Everyone will have plenty of opportunities for suffering, for affliction, for trials, for tribulations. All of these things will come upon us in various ways at various times, but God is always in it through his decretive will to accomplish good in and through us for his glory. That's the redemptive value of suffering, and that is the biblical view of suffering. So let's do an application quickly here. In the book, The Call by Oz Guinness, the author argued that Christians have two callings, a primary call and a secondary call. The former is a call to come to Christ and mature in Christ. That's the primary call. And the latter is the call to find your race. That is the specific works that God has ordained for you to do. That's the imagery of Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Furthermore, the two calls are connected. The primary call is to become self-governed under God. That is to be so regulated by the word of God that everything you do is directed by principles and by guidance from the word of God. That's self-governed under God. That's what you should be doing as parents, self-governing children under God. Employers, you should be trying to help produce self-governing workers. Church leaders, self-governing people who are walking in the will and ways of God in every area of life. Every area of authority should be helping people grow and becoming more self-governed under God, which means the Bible is the key to all of this. The transformation of one's mind comes through scripture. We see this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
that we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The only way we can have our mind renewed is to think God's thoughts. And that best, best comes to us through the word of God. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So we have to give, get God's mind on how to live. So scripture gives us the example of Jesus and the apostles who were committed to living by the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, sadly, today, there are many people who are presumed to be Christians, but denigrate scripture and exalt the Holy Spirit. They're misguided and they're not growing. They don't understand how God works. To grow as a Christian is rooted in the illumination of the word of God by the Holy Spirit, who apply, also applies the word to our lives. Anyone claiming that they don't need scripture will be disconnected from the Holy Spirit and will therefore not grow. Such people are deceived and can only live in the flesh. Scripture is the key to living according to the spirit and the illumination by the Holy Spirit is the key to understanding scripture. So we have to have a very high view of scripture. When we don't have that high view of scripture and we don't engage with the word of God as the true and the best revelation of God, you know, we will not grow up. We will not be able to fulfill our primary or secondary calling. Now, an example of the importance of the connection between the spirit and the word can be seen in, in how one views suffering. The pedestrian view of suffering is suffering is bad. Suffering should be avoided. If you suffer, ask God to free you from it as quickly as possible. The truth is that suffering is part of the call of God. Consider Peter's directive to the slaves in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20, which I read before. That, that it tells us right there explicitly that a part of our call as Christians is to suffer like Christ suffered. Christ gave us an example of suffering. The first century workers were called to step up to that level of suffering, which is when you do what's right and you suffer for it and endure for it, that is the right thing to do. Those who truly know Christ and have a profound revelation of him will do that. They won't do that in their own strength. They'll do it because the Holy Spirit is empowering them to do it, giving them the conviction to do it, leading them to do it, compelling them to do it. So this is what it is to be to suffer correctly. When the Apostle Paul encountered Christ, you may recall that that was an interesting encounter. There was no agent. It was a direct encounter with Christ, a very unique way. In fact, and not a normative way to come to Christ. The normative way is to human agents. Christ had no human agent. That's very interesting. But when he gets to Damascus, there is a human being sent to him. And this man, his name's Ananias. And Ananias was scared to go because Paul had the reputation. He, he was called Saul. But he had the reputation of being a one who persecuted the church. And Ananias was fearful. In fact, he asked the Lord, don't you understand? This is the guy that's persecuting your people. And Lord says, don't worry about it, Ananias. You go tell him. You're going to go pray and heal his eyesight. He's been blind since I encountered him. And you're going to tell him that he must suffer much for my name. That was innate in Paul's calling. It's innate in all of our callings. Traditionally, all the original apostles of Jesus were apparently martyred. Over the past decade, something like a million Christians have been martyred for their faith in Jesus worldwide. Who knows how many, I tried to find the number, how many Christians have been martyred since the beginning of Christianity? 
millions and millions of people. We have no idea how many, but it's a huge number. And you see in, in Revelation, it's going to be the voice of the martyrs is going to be seen. And you're going to see how precious the martyrs are to Christ. Now, most of us probably won't have to be martyred. We, there may be some of us, but most of us won't be. But you know something? We still get to suffer. Martyrdom is not the only way to suffer. You can suffer lots of ways. You know, pain from, you know, relational issues, pain from, you know, from suffering through malnutrition, maybe lack of something, pain from disease, uh, you know, pain from incarceration. You may be unjustly incarcerated. You may never be executed, but you may be incarcerated. There's all kinds of ways for pain and suffering, misunderstanding, wrongly accused, you know, blamed, wrongly blamed, all of this stuff. We've got to know. We have to be clear. This is part of the call. It is part of the call. And we need to learn to, to always make right choices, choices that align with the truth of the word and know that the Holy Spirit will empower us to walk through and give us the strength that we need and the wisdom we need, the direction, in some cases, the specific revelation we need to deal with whatever he's called us to do. The Bible is essential, absolutely essential for us to live out this calling. Not only our primary calling, but our secondary calling. The Bible is the only way we could ever contextualize suffering correctly and the only way we can pray correctly about how to endure suffering. So may the Lord give us grace to learn to pray right prayers, to see suffering as God sees it, to endure it well, and to always do the right thing no matter what. May he give us that grace in Jesus' name.